Hear the word of the Lord from John 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained them there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And I've got several announcements this morning that I've got to take care of before we get into the sermon. One, just a reminder for those of you who are not on Church Center, this Tuesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. at Westlake Park, we are having a send-off party for Pastor Rob and Tamara Spikestra as they are moving back to Colorado to take care of his aging parents. Rob's been an elder here for four years. He served us faithfully. He's been um, our, our discipleship pastor. He's taught men's events. He's preached up here for me. He's done care and counseling. He's done all kinds of things. He's really served us well, and we're really thankful for them. And we're going to miss them. And so we want to celebrate them well on Tuesday night. So come out, and we're, the church is... is uh, providing pulled pork sandwiches. Somebody say amen. amen. Bring a side, bring a chair, bring drinks for your family. Westlake Park, uh, no MCs this week so we can celebrate and send them off well. It's gonna be a good time. Second thing, <clears throat> if you don't know Kevin Knorr, you should, he's been doing announcements for a while. Kevin was a, a pastoral um, resident for a couple years. We trained him in pastoral ministry 
And then he went to seminary and completed his seminary with Mid Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, same seminary that I went to. And he, he is now a biblical counselor. And so he, he then became my pastoral assistant. Well, we're transitioning him into the role that we think God has specifically equipped him for. And that's the role of biblical counselor. So what that means for you is if you need counseling, we have a biblical counselor now on staff. All right? So elbow your wife and say, all right, go ahead. If you need marriage counseling, because you just did that, Kevin also provides marriage counseling, all right? So if, you, if you're teenagers, kids, anybody, if, if you need counseling, you can get on Kevin's schedule. The best way to do that is emailing Kevin directly, kevin at sacredcitychurch.com, and he will work out a counseling plan, sit down with you. And we, this is something we want to offer our church because we know that we've all got wounds from our families of origin, sins from our past. We've got all kinds of stuff that we're dealing with that can't always be addressed uh, specifically in Missional Community or Fight Club. And so for that, we are offering this uh, ministry to you. So please reach out to Kevin for that. Third, <clears throat> for the last several years, we've been talking a lot about how Christ's kingship, that Christ is Lord, how that affects everything in our life. From the way that we raise our kids, to education, to the way that we live our life, to even politics, all these different things. And one of the guys who've been preaching and teaching about this for literally decades is Pastor Douglas Wilson. And Pastor Doug Wilson has written a book called Mere Christendom. And we were interested in this book and we were looking into buying this book. And, and, and then we found out that they were going to offer, Canon Press was going to offer these Christ is Lord gift boxes. Now, the book is in this box. A signed copy of, of the, the, the new book is in this. It's got some bumper stickers. It's got some other swag, as the kids say, filled with this box here. Now, here's the deal. This is, they worked out a pretty cool deal. They said, if you buy 20 of these at one time at one zip code, we will purchase a, um, a billboard in your area that simply says, Christ is Lord. So we did it. We, we bought over 20 of these. We have them in the foyer. They were 25 bucks a, per, a box, but we're selling them to you for $20 a box. So please pick these up. And if you're driving west on 53rd Street around Tremont area and you look up to the right, we did that. It says simply Christ is Lord. It's pretty sick, okay? So and we're probably gonna put some social media stuff out about it this month and you can share it on social media. It's pretty cool. You can buy those in the foyer. They're in there today. And lastly, <clears throat> as Rob already mentioned, man, there is so much going on over at the building. We want you guys to continue to pray, continue to give. Thank you for all the volunteers that have came out, that have painted, that have cleaned up. People have been dropping off snacks. All of our contractors are really happy because they're dropping off snacks, cookies, all kinds of different things. And, you know, the, the guys just, hey, it's easier to work if you got a little bit of sugar in your system, okay? So everybody's happy about that. <clears throat> this week, we got some signs hung. We got some offices decorated. We got the nursing mother's room decorated. We got the counseling office decorated. Uh, we got some carpet in the main offices. All the offices are now carpeted. The stage has been redesigned. We've hung, we hung some doors behind the stage, some big monster doors. Um, I, me and some teenagers this weekend went in there and we reframe the entire balcony. And so now we have six um, risers in the back, seven risers in the balcony. We can fit over 120 people in the balcony now. So much stuff's being done. 
Uh, please keep us in your prayers, though. Oh, tile, the bathrooms have been tiled. If you haven't, you need to stop by just to see the work that's being done. But when you stop by, wear work clothes. <laughs> Give yourself an hour or so. It's going to be a bit. Somebody might put a broom in your hand. Listen, um, any time that the contractors don't have to spend carrying out chunks of wood, carrying out garbage pails, carrying out, is uh, the project gets done that much faster, right? We're paying them to do the specialty work. And so we don't want to have to pay them to carry out trash. So if you can come in, if you're not skilled at all and you just want to come in and clean, do it. We need it, right? But if you can paint, we need you too, right? We need you too. So lots of work to be done. Please uh, keep us in your thoughts and prayers and put it in your schedule too. That's all I've got to say about that. Let me pray for us and we can get into our text this morning. Father, man, first of all, I just thank you for the summer. I thank you for the cooler temperatures out there, the enjoyable temperatures. I thank you for the slow down pace that many of us get to experience in the summer. I thank you that Joel is with his family and friends on vacation. I pray that you would do what Psalm 23 says and you, you would lead him beside still waters and you would restore his soul. He serves us so faithful um, week after week after week, all year long. Would you do a good work in his soul as he's away with his family? Let them have really a lot and just an enjoyable time together. And now, Lord, as your people come and we gather together before your word, we need to be fed. We need you to instruct us. We need you to give us what we need for right living, godly thinking. We need you to arm us with the weapons of our warfare that we need to fight the fight of faith this week. And so I just confess that I am a sinner and I, I am in need of grace and I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords this morning. And I pray that your sheep would beg for your grace to hear what you would have for them this morning. That we don't stand above your word with a critical spirit, but we, stand, we sit under your word and we want to receive from your throne of grace what you'd have for us this morning. So would you do this for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, let me begin by telling you this morning that I want you to be happy. I do. I want you to be happy. Now, I don't mean that I want you to get all the things in life that you think will make you happy. A lot of money, an easy life, wild success in your career. That type of happiness is very circumstantial and has led many people before us to utter ruin. Many people in the annals of history have gotten everything they wanted. Success, power, money, sex, fame. And they were miserable. When I say that I want you to be happy, I mean that I want your life to be characterized by a deep and abiding joy. That's one of the reasons why I'm a pastor. I believe that God has called me to lead others into everlasting joy. The psalmist says, you have put, speaking of God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In other words, God fills my heart with more joy than all the whiskey in the world can put in the best wino's heart. All right? More than good food, more than success, more than anything the world gives, God's put more joy than that in my heart. 
Again, the psalmist declares in chapter 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is, look, fullness of joy, an abundant joy, an overflowing joy, and pleasures, oh my goodness, I can hardly contain myself, pleasures that last forever. If you are in Christ, listen, food is good. I had a good steak on Friday night, got to go out to eat with my wife and some good friends, had a good steak. It was good, but guess what? After that last bite, I wish there was one more. It was, it was over, right? You finish that drink, it's gone, right? You hit that perfect shot in golf, there's another one coming and it probably won't be perfect. You go on vacation, guess what? It's a great thing to enjoy. It's a great pleasure, but guess what? That vacation always comes to an end, doesn't it? One of the things that I remember about going on a vacation as a kid is always the day before vacation be was going to end, my mom would start asking my dad to take two more days off. Just get two more days. We can stay two more days. Most of the time we did stay two more days. But guess what? After that, we still had to go back home, right? All these good things come to an end, but joy in God can go on forevermore. The Bible speaks about joy over 200 times in the scriptures. It's one of the key themes of Christianity. Unfortunately, most people that I know just don't know how to get it. Christians are meant to be joyful. Sometimes I'm around Christians, I'm like, man, do you have any joy? Look like you suck on a lemon all day long. Bro. Too many Christians don't have this type of joy in their life. Today I want to teach you how to find this joy. The joy that the old King James version of the Bible said was joy unspeakable and full of glory. In other words, God offers us a joy that is beyond our comprehension and understanding, a joy that can keep our life afloat no matter what comes our life, no matter if it's a million dollars and success or if it's suffering and death. This joy can keep our life afloat in the midst of all these circumstances. Today, we're gonna learn from a man who had that kind of joy a joy that sustained him when everybody was singing his praises and thousands of people were coming to see him, a joy that sustained him when his popularity began to wane, a joy that sustained him when he was put in prison, a joy that, was, that sustained him all the way through the axe, cutting through the sinews of his flesh and cutting his head off, a joy that took him all the way to the shores of glory. He had an indestructible joy that led him to eternal life and pleasures forevermore. Now, I'm going to ask you this morning, would you like to learn how to get a joy like that? Good. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 22. We're going to go verse by verse through our text this morning. And you know what? I'm going to just say this right now. I didn't say this in the first service. I'm going to encourage you. I know we put it up on screen and we do offer, we have some Bibles. I would encourage you, bring your Bible to church. Listen, I know we've got a lot of kids and we're carrying diaper bags and carrying all kinds of things. And, 
and we don't like to carry things, but I would encourage you to start carrying your Bible. It's good to follow along verse by verse, highlight things, circle things. So start, let's start bringing our Bibles, all right? Chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So they're leaving the city and going out into the country. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Okay, so Jesus' team, let's say, is now baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. Look, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, I want us to remember here who John the baptizer was. He was a wild prophet sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord's Messiah. He was a voice, he said, crying in the wilderness, make way for God's Savior to come into the world. And God gave John a very specific calling and ministry of preaching a certain message and baptizing, dunking people in water. It was kind of a crazy thing to do at that time. And God had blessed this ministry in such a way that we don't know how long John had been doing it, but probably years on end. And now all of a sudden, his ministry has gained momentum. And now thousands of people are coming out to hear this message and see John baptize. Even though he was a wild and eccentric man. They said he had rough clothing made of camel's hair. He had a crazy diet made up of locusts and wild honey. He said very offensive things. He basically called people like a box of, two, uh, a box of dead bones and a den of vipers. And he was a hard-nosed dude. And yet God blessed the ministry. He said mean, hard things, but they were true. And God blessed it so people like came out to see it, like, right? They came out to watch this wild man. <clears throat> and he was, so even in the midst of his offensiveness, he was wildly popular. So much so that the religious leaders of the day despised him. They were jealous of his success. Now here's something that's pretty crazy. Jesus in Matthew says of John the baptizer, quote, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, that's something you would put on your job, or that's something you'd put on your resume right there. Jesus says, I'm the best man to ever live. In essence, he's saying, Jesus is saying, John the Baptist was better than Abraham, better than Moses, better than David, better than Nehemiah, better than all the prophets that came after them. Do you hear what that, that's a huge statement. Jesus, the son of God, says, John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever live. Now, I want you to hear that. I want you to hear greatest. I want you to hear gifted. I want you to hear talented. I want you to hear leader. I want you to hear godly. In other words, John the Baptist was probably better than all of us, right? He was what we should aspire to be like. He was godly and righteous and good. And he didn't care about the opinions of others. And he only cared about God's opinion. He was a great man who did what God called him to do. Right? And at this point of his life, he's leading a large ministry. Thousands are coming out to see him. And now, Jesus begins his ministry. And in chapter 535, Jesus calls John a bright, a burning and shining lamp. And here's what's happening. That burning and shining lamp is going to the background 
while the light of the world can move to the foreground. In other words, John the Baptist is fading off into the shadows. The greatest man to ever live is fading off into the shadows. And now Jesus, the son of God, is coming into the front. In theater terms, Jesus is beginning to upstage John. More people now are coming to see Jesus and hear Jesus and Jesus' disciples than coming to John's. Now, can I ask you this morning, how would that make you feel if you were John? Think about it. You've worked your whole life to become a godly man. You've earned You've, you've earned it, man. You've been out there in the wilderness grinding. You've been about that life in the wilderness. Grinding for years, preaching, teaching, living a righteous, holy life, studying the word of God. Starting out with one follower, then a, then a few more, then a few more. Now after years, you've got thousands. And in walks Jesus, who, by the way, is your younger cousin. Starts doing what you were already doing, preaching and baptizing. And now your followers start to follow him. Here comes the new guy. And now your clients and your followers are going towards him. They start walking away from you and following him. How would that make you feel? I'll tell you this morning, it would feel like a slow death. Death of influence, death of leadership, death of success, death of impact. It's a slow death like a thousand tiny paper cuts. It's like the death of youthful beauty that comes with age through a thousand tiny wrinkles and sunspots. It's like the death of youthful strength that comes through a slow and almost imperceptible rounding of the back, deteriorating of the knees and slow, agonizing muscle loss. John's popularity his influence now is waning. How's he going to respond to that slow death? Before we see his response, we get to see how his closest followers respond. Look at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, is this what you want to experience at the peak of your adult life, right? He's in his mid-30s here. He's in his vigorous years, right? John is strong. He's capable. He's, he's prepared himself well. And now he's at the peak of his ministry. And now all of a sudden his, his followers come to him and go, John, have you noticed? Everybody's leaving. They used to come, now they're going. Well, what are we doing? They're going to Jesus. See, people are noticing things have changed. The market has shifted. They used to be the hottest thing in town and now they weren't. Right? Maybe they're, they're coming to John like, John, okay, the hard-nosed prophet thing worked for the past few years, but it's not working anymore. We need to do, maybe you should change your outfit. Right? Let's do something different than camel's hair now. Right? Got to work with the culture here, John. Right? Stop calling people vipers. Doesn't, it's not going well. The PR is getting bad. Right? 
We need to change something. What, what are they? They're seeing their success. They're seeing their influence wane. And now they're worried. Now, I, I remember back when Krispy Kreme donuts first came to town. You remember when Krispy Kreme, if you're OG Quad Cityans, you do. Because it, it was amazing, right? The, those first few months, right? Lines wrapped around the block. No matter what office you worked in, somebody brought in like six dozens of these bad boys, right? Always, what, what would you do, right? You're driving down, hot donuts. Turn it in. That play, I mean, it was hopping over there. Then a few years later, this guy writes this book called The Atkins Diet. And the low-carb diet becomes the new thing. And now all of a sudden, donuts were the enemy of the people. And Krispy Kreme, a few months later, had to eventually close its doors. Right? See, this is the problem with all worldly success. Markets shift. Things happen. If you find your joy in things, your joy will always be precarious. Your joy will always be resting on something that can be taken away from you in a million different ways. Loss, failure, a downturn in the economy. One guy writes one book about carbs. Anything can take your joy. All they have to do is take your stuff. So John's disciples come to him and say, John, Jesus is taking away your followers. He's taking your stuff. He's taking our joy. He's taking our influence. We are losing our ministry here, John. Jesus is bringing about our ruin. What are you going to do? John's response here shows us three keys to unbreakable joy. Three keys to unbreakable joy. One, we're going to see a principle. Two, we're going to see a person. And three, we're going to have a power. Principle, person, power. First, let's look at verse 27. Here's how John responded to them. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Here's the principle of providence. Verse 27 might be the most simple definition of providence I have ever heard. No one can receive anything unless it comes to you from heaven. In other words, God has hand custom designed every single experience of your life and he's done it with your good in mind for a purpose. Here's how the Westminster Confession summarizes it. Quote, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. In other words, 
God is in control of all things. And he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. And everything in your life, he has, has his stamp of approval on it before it gets to you. Now, I want you to hear, put this in context for John. When confronted with ministry disappointment, with a loss of influence and a downturn in his effectiveness, John says, everything comes from the good hand of a good God. Success and failure. Gain and loss. Life and death. He says, if I rejoice in the good things that God gives, shouldn't I rejoice in the midst of loss as well? We're reminded. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent, a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. See, John here has learned to trust the hand of providence, whether he's giving ministry success or he's taking away ministry success. This is what the Bible calls meekness. Now, meekness is not being a wimp. Meekness is not being soft. Meekness, here's a definition from Matthew Henry on meekness. Quote, the easy and quiet submission of the soul to God's whole will according as he is pleased to make it known whether by his word or providence. Now this is a damning sentence. I want you to hear it. Meekness is the quiet and easy submission of the soul to God's whole will according as he is pleased to make it known, whether by his word or by his providence. Meekness is saying to God, your will is good, right, true, and perfect. No matter what's coming in my life, it's from you and I accept it as coming from the hand of a good God. I don't know about you, but I don't have an easy and quiet submission of the soul to God's whole will and providence in his word most of the time. I rage against the stuff, the, the, the hard providences that often come into my life. I don't accept them. I rage against them. But what does John do here? John says, you can't receive anything unless it comes from God. See, if John had believed that his success was a result of his power, his hard work, his devotion, his goodness, his righteousness, his intelligence, then when his ministry began to wane, he would have lost his joy. He would have been depressed. He would have shook his fist at God and said, what are you doing? 
But John knew, I am who I am and I have what I have only because God providentially gave it to me from heaven. Now I want you to think about this, how how it applies to you. Your DNA, your family of origin, your home, your place of birth, your parents, your friends, your acquaintances, your education, your career, all of your life experiences have all been given to you by God himself. Good, bad, ugly, painful, all of them. He chose them for you. He predestined them. He wrote them into your story. Can you receive that with joy? With a quiet and easy submission of the soul? Or do you rage against it? Why did I have those parents? Why did I grow up in that neighborhood? Why didn't I learn about Christ until I was in my 30s? Why was I abused? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Do you look at your life and read the providence of God and does it seem unfair to you? Well, let me remind you, John doesn't think so. And John's life and ministry is almost over at this point. He's in his mid-30s. And John is about to yell at the wrong dude. Actually, he yells at precisely the right dude, Herod Antipas, who was the Roman ruler who, who, Roman ruler who had sinfully married his brother's wife. And John calls him out, declares the word of God to him, says that he's in sin and that God's going to judge him. And Herod arrests him, throws him into prison. Then some young, precocious, seductive woman dances before Herod. This seductive dance before Herod. And Herod, who loses his mind with lust, says to her, whatever you want, I'll give to you. She doesn't know what she wants. She goes back to her mom. Her mom was just as wicked as she was. And her mom hated John the Baptist, no doubt because John the Baptist preached the truth and preached repentance. And she was not wanting to live a repentant life and give her life uh, to, to God and serve God. So she says, you know what I want? I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So this seductress goes back to Herod and says, here's the one thing I want. I want the head of that preacher who you've got in prison. And Herod does it. Put yourself in John's shoes. A whole life devoted to God. You're the greatest man to ever live before Jesus Christ. You're righteous. You're holy. You've done everything right. You're, pre- you're preaching the gospel. You're baptizing. And now all of a sudden, in the peak of your success, in the peak of your strength, your ministry starts to wane. You get thrown in prison. And then your head gets cut off and delivered on a platter in front of Herod Antipas. How in the world could John stay joyful in the midst of this hard providence? He had found the second key. He knew the person of Jesus. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. Now listen, here's, you see the uniqueness of John the Baptist right now. I, any strong, prophetic, bold type guy like John the Baptist, he never, you never say things like this. If you ask a bold guy, if he's the guy, he's gonna say, yeah, I'm the guy. If, if a boss comes to this guy and says, hey, listen, I need, a, I need somebody to fulfill this new, I, I need a new role here. I need you to take on a new department. Do you think you could be the head of that department? That guy says, yeah, I, I could do it. I'm the guy. And then he goes home and tries to convince himself that he is the guy, right? John, when, when people came to John the Baptist and said, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the guy? John the Baptist said, no, it's not me. He knew who he wasn't. And that helped him define his role and who he was. So right away he says, nope, I'm, I'm not the Christ. Keep reading. I'm not the Christ, but I, but I have been sent before him. Look, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now this is a metaphor that's used all throughout scripture. And here it is. Jesus Christ is the groom. His church, his believers are the bride. Okay? John says the bride is prepared for the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus Christ is the groom. Jesus Christ is the Christ. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the one. He is the Savior. I'm not that guy. Look who he is. The friend of the bridegroom, in other words, the best man. John sees himself as the best man and Jesus is the groom. Now we know... Uh, it's a, if, you, if your best man tries to upstage you at your wedding, that best man needs to be beat afterwards, right? No, no, the best man is supposed to stand there, you know, give the ring, be silent. The, the eyes are supposed to be on the bride and the groom. Well, John knows his role. I'm the best man, Jesus is the groom, right? The attention's supposed to be about Jesus. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. Keep looking. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who stands and hears Jesus, look at this, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's saying, I have great joy that now I'm backing away and Jesus is the groom. I have great joy now that the groom has arrived. I find joy in Jesus. Now look, keep reading. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete or full. I am full of joy. What? How? How did John find great joy in Jesus? Well, he tells us in verse 31. Skip to verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. I love this, I love this idea what John's, doing, what, what John's doing right now. He's saying this. Think about where Jesus comes from. Jesus comes from heaven. What's in heaven? Everything you want. That's what's in heaven. The source of all goodness, the source of all beauty, the source of all truth. Everything comes from up above. And Jesus is coming from up above. Therefore, he's above all of us. He's better than all of us. He's superior to everything on this earth. So I can rejoice in the groom because I'm not like that. I'm from down here. Jesus is from up there. John recognizes the glory of Jesus, the superior and surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. Keep reading. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, that's himself, and he speaks in an earthy way. But he who comes from heaven is above all, that's Jesus. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Stop. 
Why is Jesus so important to us? Why is Jesus so important to us even experiencing joy and finding lasting pleasure and happiness? Because Jesus knows where those things are found. He comes from heaven. That's where all those things are found. All the lasting peace, happiness, joy. Jesus knows where they're found. He's he's coming from heaven. He's telling us about them and he's telling us how to get them. So if you want peace, if you want joy, if you want happiness, if you want a fulfilling life, you better listen to Jesus because he's the only one that's ever came from heaven and came down here to tell us how to get it. I need some help in here this morning. Come on now. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Do you want to base your life on a truth that isn't going to move? A foundation that isn't dependent upon your own feelings or the culture's idea of what is true? Then look to Jesus Christ. He's the source of truth. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus tells us what God said. Jesus tells us what God is like. For he gives the spirit without measure. In other words, God gave the spirit to Jesus without measure. The father loves the son, has given all things into his hands. That Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Whoever, look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life, listen, so many people think eternal life means heaven. Heaven is a part of eternal life, but eternal life begins at the moment you're converted. The moment you're born again. Eternal life is life with God. It's a covenant relationship with the God of the universe. It's a relationship with God that begins in this life and then goes on forever into eternity. It's a relationship that changes you forever from one degree of glory forever. Eternal life begins now and slowly will make you more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more good, more faithful, more meek, more self-controlled. Jesus called this the Zoe life, life and life to the fullest, life more abundant. And all of this is yours when you put your faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Now see, this is so much better than material success and the things of this world. All those things will fade. This won't fade. You're going to live forever somewhere. Eternal life or eternal death. What keeps so many people from experiencing this type of joy? Well, it's two things. One, we see it in the end of verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You're born, if I could go uh, the old Wiley Coyote route here and give an analogy. You were born with a giant piano hanging over your head. 
That piano is called the wrath of God. That's what's due to you because you were born in sin and then you sinned yourself and you, and, and you deserve the wrath of God, the judgment of God upon you. And here's the reality. Every single human being walks around with that piano over their head and one day it will ultimately crush them unless you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ rushes in and knocks you out of the way and he receives the full just wrath of God in your place for your sins. And he gives you his righteousness and he saves you. He gives you eternal life because he takes the wrath of God for you. So many people don't experience eternal joy because they don't believe in Jesus Christ and so the wrath of God remains on him and you can't experience joy if, the wrath of, if you're under the wrath of God. You can't. But the second reason many people fail to experience this type of joy is found it's the final key to Christian joy and shows the true greatness of John the baptizer. And we're going to see it in verse 30. Here's what John says. Well, right before that, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. Here's what he says. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. That's the final key. You see it? This is where we see John's true greatness. This might be the greatest response to Jesus in all of Scripture. The failure to be able to say this and believe it is what keeps many people, even Christians, from experiencing true and lasting joy. See, John's joy came from resting in the principle of providence trusting in the person of Jesus. And the final key shows us the joy-sustaining power of humility. I must decrease and he must increase. See, pride is the opposite of humility. And pride isn't just thinking too highly of yourself. Pride is much oftentimes the case of just thinking about yourself too often. Thinking about what you deserve. Thinking about what you earn. Thinking about you, you, you. Thinking about who hurt you. Who sinned against you. What God owes you. Pride is thinking about you. And pride is a sin that keeps us joyless. It robs us of joy and keeps us looking at the creation instead of worshiping the creator. C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, quote, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives the, the deadly, serious passions, listen, of envy and self-importance and resentment. In other words, hell is a place where everyone is trying to say to everyone else, I must increase and you must decrease. Everyone's saying, look at me, look at me. Everyone that's saying, I deserve this. I want this. Me, 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 me. That's hell. 
It's also social media most of the time. Those correlate. Pride says, this is what I deserve. Pride says, let me boast about all that I have. Pride says, I'm better than you in all these ways. Pride always compares. C.S. Lewis says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having it more than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. See, when you are proud, you compare yourself with another person. And listen, there's only two possible outcomes. One, you believe you come out on top, pride. You feel even more pride. Or two, you compare yourself with others and you believe you come out on the bottom. And guess what? You feel envy. Envy comes when pride is wounded. And listen to this. Envy is the ugliest sin. Envy is the ugliest sin. Because it's the only sin that doesn't bring some pleasure with it. Think about it. When you lust, you get some pleasure out of that. When you steal, you get some pleasure out of something you value. When you lie, you get what you want in the moment. But when you envy another person, you don't get anything good out of that at all. You actually feel bad and you wish something bad upon another person. Thomas Aquinas defined envy as sorrow at another's good. You see, you know, right? You're looking at truck prices and you see, what? Do you see these new truck prices? And then your neighbor pulls up with one. You feel, he pulls up in his new car. He's feeling great. And you, you look at it and you feel bad. Well, and what do you do? You look at him and you start, he's probably selling drugs or something. I don't know what this guy is. <laughs> Who can afford that? Envy, look what envy does. Your, tr- your neighbor pulled up in that new truck and your envy robbed you of joy. It made you feel worse in the moment. Envy, when it manifests in our life, it does three things. Number one, it makes us feel uneasy and out of place when other people are successful or more successful than us. Instead of rejoicing in the prosperity of others, the envious man will be troubled with it. Does it bother you when others get something you wish you had? House, kids, social media followers, success, health, vacations. Do you feel bad when they get it? That's envy. And by the way, I think envy is one of the most dominant sins in our culture today. And it's the reason we're experiencing so much animosity between classes and races of people because people are looking at others and say, I deserve that. Two, envy produces animosity. 
So when I see somebody get something that I think I deserve, I don't just say, oh, good for them. I say, whoa, it just makes me so mad at them. Can't stand that person. Guarantee they cheat on their taxes. That guy probably beats his wife. Listen, tell me those thoughts don't come into your mind. When you see somebody more successful than you, what are they doing? I bet she's got cosmetic surgery. That's the only way she looks that way. That's the only way she looks that good. Hmm, at her age? Hmm, that guy's on testosterone. I can tell. There's no way. He looks too good. Uh-uh. Envy creates animosity. In other words, envy destroys community because it creates distance between people. When I envy someone, I won't want to be around them because their life makes mine feel less significant. Third, when I envy someone, I become a fault finder. I begin to see everything they do as further proof that I should not love them or be in relationship with them. Envy creates a critical spirit in a person and a critical spirit kills joy. Do you hear that? I want you to hear this. This is why Christians don't walk around joyful. Because think of this. Think of your life as a big old bathtub. And when you come to Christ, God gives you eternal life. And God fills that bathtub with overflowing with joy and reasons to be joyful and glad. He's given you so many kind providences that you should be thankful for. So much great things you should be grateful for. Your, your tub is overflowing. But what does envy do? Envy pulls the drain. What's a critical spirit do? Pulls the drain. What's pride do? Pulls the drain. Philosopher Peter Kreef says, envy removes us of joy because it is the opposite of gratitude. And gratitude is the seedbed of joy. John the Baptist had all of the worldly success taken from him and yet possessed what he calls a complete joy. Jesus completed my joy, he says. And he was willing to be nothing more than a best man, nothing more than a signpost pointing to the only sinless man to have ever lived, the one and only son of God. Listen, this is where true joy is found. And this is our duty as Christians. We must decrease and he must increase. This is, see, we're building this building, this bu- or we're remodeling this building. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. We want to decrease and we want him to e- increase. We've got a, a, a focal wall in there that says Jesus changes everything. I get to see it from my pulpit. I can't wait to, I can't wait to preach from that pulpit. Why? Because we believe it. We are signposts that point to Jesus. Sacred City doesn't change everything. Justin doesn't change anything. You don't change everything. Jesus changes everything. He must increase. We must decrease. 
Let me ask you as I close. Is the sin of envy draining your life of joy? Let us repent and feast on Christ this morning. Have you complained or grumbled about the circumstances of your life this week? Your head's not on a platter yet. Repent and feast on Christ this week. Do you want the eternal life, the eternal joy and peace that begins now and goes on into eternity? Put your faith in Christ and come to this table and feast on him this morning. Here's the deal. God gave you the hard providences because he loves you. You need him. Without him, you'd forget him. Without him, you become proud. Without the hard providences, you would rely on your own wisdom, your own strength, your own success. God gives you the hard providences because he loves you. He cares for you. He's got eternal hope, eternal peace, eternal life waiting for you. Did you grumble this week? Confess. And he made a table for you where he offers you himself this morning. What do you got to do to make yourself right for this? You have to confess your sins. You have to repent of your sins. You have to open up your hand and you have to receive the gift that Jesus Christ gives. Jesus Christ is present in this meal with us this morning. Feed on him. Jesus, you are above us. You are above all. You are unique in all the universe. You are the source of all goodness, all truth, all beauty. We need and we want what you have and the only way to get it is to listen to you, to put our faith in you and to obey the son and so I pray that we would obey the son this morning. When we're tempted to grumble, when we're tempted to complain, Father, would we rest in your providence? Would we trust in the person of Christ and would you produce the power of humility in all of our hearts? We can't do this on our own. We need the Spirit of God to do it. So would you do it for us this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.